Spirit, Mercy View. I'll be reading from Colossians 1, 3 through 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Hey, hey, there we go. Good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. If you are visiting with us this evening, we want to say welcome to you. Honor that you've chosen to hang out with us. Pray you've been encouraged and blessed by your time so far um, with us. Well, it's been um, a wild two and a half years, huh? The last two and a half years since COVID entered our lives, our world. And it seems like the chaos of these last two and a half years have burned a lot of things away. And one of the things that uh, I feel like has happened over the last two and a half years within the church house as a pastor here at Mercy View is it's, it's burned away the chaff of our programs, our vision statements, our attendance numbers, and then the add to that the stressful stew of of uh, politicization debates over health measures the reality of racial injustice and a throw in a dash of social media slander and uh, it's no wonder so many of us feel after two and a half years of this that we're barely hanging on in fact for my wife and I about two and a half months ago Um, we realized that uh, that was true of us. And we raised our hand and asked to talk to some friends here in this church to begin to process what's taken place in our own hearts over the last two and a half years. I don't know if you feel that or have felt that, but it's real. On the church front, uh, the, the elders of Mercy View have for a while now been looking at these realities that we've walked through. In many ways, we are in a, a time in history, I think in the time of the church, where things are very, very different. Um, and we have become convinced as we have talked and prayed and considered um, that, that more than ever, this cultural moment that we find ourselves in as God's people is very important. In fact, maybe one way we could describe it is a crossroads. Uh, We believe that now more than ever before, the church, God's people, Christian men and women and children, are being called to something anew. Being called to embody the true depth and sacrificial call of the Christian faith for the sake of God's mission in the world. And as your elders have considered this, man, we have talked a ton about this, right, John? Just almost every elder meeting, times of prayer together. It's come to our, uh, just our sense from the Lord that there is a very stark reality for us all. It is time for us 
to be called to go deeper. Tonight, we begin a new seven-week series. Um, We are doing that very thing over these next seven weeks. We are wanting to consider the ways that you and I are called to move more deeply into being a disciple of Jesus. This series is called that, Deeper. Every partner, this is just another way to say that that if you're a partner with us here, this is kind of like a seven-week family meeting. And we want to talk about what it looks like if you're a partner, a member here with us, what it means to move more deeply into this. But here's what I would say. If, if you're not a partner with us here at Mercy View or you're visiting tonight for the first time, um, this is a two-pronged thing for you. One, you get to kind of witness this seven-week family meeting. But this is also a great opportunity for you to say, I want in on that. Because what we're going to talk about over the next seven weeks is true really for any disciple of Jesus. But if it's true for any disciple of Jesus, it's for sure true for every partner here at Mercy View. And in this series, what we're going to attempt to do is examine how the local church and those individuals within it, the partners within it, are called to count the cost of true discipleship, to move more deeply into fellowship with Jesus. This is for sure a Come to Jesus series. In other words, you will be challenged. Um, You will be convicted. You will be called to the end of yourself and to Jesus. Perhaps it's here when we've been called to the very end of ourselves, when all the old measures for monitoring how we're doing have been altered by this pandemic, we'll be most ready to hear afresh the gospel and to taste again the goodness of God the one who has called us into his service. In some ways, what we're doing tonight is to say, it is no longer business as usual. So I hope you're here tonight to hear from the Lord by his spirit and to enter into this journey with us to see what the Lord might have for us over the next seven weeks, to move more deeply into being a disciple of Jesus. As we do it tonight, we want to start at the very core of what it means to be called to Jesus. And as we do that, I want to invite you to see two things. The first is this, the gospel is a truth to be known. And secondly, the gospel is a power to be experienced. So if you have your Bible in hand or your electronic devices, keep them open to Colossians chapter 1. You heard Marla read from, beginning there in verse 3. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I want you to notice as you look at verse 3, what Paul starts by doing. Remember, Paul would write these letters to his friends in these churches that he helped start. This was one of those churches. And he's sending this letter to them to talk about a lot of different things. But what he begins with at the very start of this letter is to encourage them. Apparently, the Colossian church was doing a great job of having faith in Jesus and love for the saints, which is another word to say they had love for one another, the members of that church. And Paul had heard about this, and he wanted to say, you guys are doing a great job. I want to encourage you. I want to commend you for the great work that you are doing, showing that you have a deep faith in Jesus and a love for one another. And he points to the foundation 
of that faith and love. Look what he says there in verse 5. He says the foundation of that faith, the foundation of that love is found in hope. It's the hope that is located somewhere in particular. Do you notice where it's located? It says that it's a hope laid up for you in heaven. It's a hope that's grounded in the future, the new heavens and the new earth, where the presence and the power of sin is forever gone, and Jesus is the very center of our lives and our worship. And then look with me, if you would, at the middle of verse 5. Here we see another reason they had great hope. Let me read that for us again. It says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Then the beginning of verse 6, which has come to you. So it wasn't only the hope that the Colossian church had in their future that was fueling their faith, fueling their love, but it was also something that had taken place in their past that Paul is wanting to remind them to continue to place their hope in. And he says, it is, listen, the word of truth the gospel. And Paul is saying that the Colossian church at one time in the past had received the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? That is the content of the gospel, the entry point into the kingdom of God. And this hope then is found also in a past reality, the past reality of the gospel saving work. But it's also a future reality of the gospel's once and for all saving work. Paul is saying, I see this faith and love being spurred by the, the, the gospel truth that is both a past reality and a future reality. Now, this word gospel is a word we use a lot here at Mercy View. But what is it? It might be good for us if we're going to say that... Um, we want to start tonight at the very core of what we're all called to, to define what the gospel is. The word gospel appears there in verse 5. It's the word euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelize or evangel. Now, back in the, the, the Middle Ages, like back before telegraphs or phones or newspapers or social media, you had to wait a long time to hear the news of whether your side had won a battle or not. Sometimes it was days, sometimes it was weeks, but eventually a messenger would come to you to announce the result. And if you had won, the head of that announcer would have a wreath on it, and he would be swinging a palm branch, and he would very simply be announcing through the village, We won! And the word that was used to describe the good news that you had won the battle was euangelion, the good news of victory. That is where we get our word gospel. So when you see the word gospel here in our passage today, what Paul is saying here is that the good news of the gospel has come to the Colossian church and it is giving them hope because it is good news of a victory over sin and death both in the past and they, there's a sense in which there's a future reality where once and for all that, that victory over sin and death will be for sure done. 
In other words, we could say it this way. It's not good advice. It's not a good opinion. It's not a good idea. It is good news. So we're not talking about a vague concept here. It it has content. It has substance. It's rooted in history. There is actually something to believe in. So listen, if the gospel is a truth to receive, one of the things that it means is that there's information, there's content to the gospel. The gospel is a set of things that you have to believe in in order to be saved. This brings me to the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. The gospel is a truth to be known. Now, I want you to notice that Paul talks about a third way that hope comes to the Christian. And this is what I really want to drill down into this evening because I believe this this way that Paul is talking about captures the heartbeat of where we need to start in this series. It captures what we see is at the very core of what it means to go deeper as a disciple of Jesus. In other words, if we don't get this, it's going to be really difficult to us, for us to move more deeply into being a disciple of Jesus. So look with me, if you would, again, at the middle of verse 5. Paul says that the word of truth, the gospel, has come to the Colossian church. But notice what he says next in verse 6. Let me read that again for us. He says that the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Do you see what Paul also says about the gospel here? Again, we just said it was a truth that that comes to us in salvation If you're a Christian here, there is a past reality of of, of that gospel truth coming to you. But we also said it's a truth that once and for all will save us into eternity. But here Paul says that the message that has come to the Colossian church, that has come to you if you're a Christian here tonight, is something in the present. Like this is is what it means to, to bear fruit and to see the gospel increase, it means that there is something, uh, something happening in real time in your life. There is something happening since the day that you heard it. Paul is saying this. He's saying something profound. Don't miss this. Paul is saying that the gospel is not just a truth to receive, and then we move on from it. He is saying that the gospel itself, the good news of victory over sin and death, is something that should bear fruit in your lives. Like the gospel itself is what increases in your life. What Paul is trying to say is that even after we are saved by God, after we're converted, it is still and will always be the gospel that changes you. Listen, the gospel is intended to be a present power. It is the key to our sanctification. By the way, I I was sitting in a a church gathering about eight years ago uh, with Holly, the church that I was doing a church planting residency at. And the pastor was preaching from Colossians 1, and he read this verse 
And in that little moment of, of him reading it and beginning to explain it, he said what I just said to you. I had a mini crisis of faith because I thought, wait a second. I thought that the gospel was just the entryway. And now I'm supposed to move into like deeper theological truths and more religious activity. Which, by the way, has a, a way of turning into works righteousness. But, but I was just completely thrown off by him saying, no, no, listen, the gospel is something the Lord intends to use in your life in the present. And really what he was trying to say is the second thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. The gospel is a power to be experienced. The gospel is a power to be experienced. Yes, it's a truth to be known, but that truth has to move from our head to our heart to be experienced. And it's not just the gateway in, it is actually the road to sanctification. So then the, the natural question I'm sure you have is, so what does that mean, Brad? Like, how do we live this out? How do we experience the gospel in the present as a power? Or to say it the way we say it here at Mercy View, how do we apply the gospel to our everyday lives so that you and I can experience its present power? Well, here's what I want to do this evening. We're going to hang out here for most of our time tonight. I want to do a very deep dive into one of the most helpful ways I believe we can think about how to apply the gospel in our lives. And then very briefly at the very end of our time, I want to talk about how I think that can work itself out in the context of this local church. So first, how can you and I better learn to apply the gospel to our lives? If this is really the key to all the things that we're going to be talking about here over the next few weeks, we have got to get this figured out. I think one of the best ways that you and I can learn to apply the gospel to our lives is to press our sin through the prism of what the Bible calls idolatry. Let me just read a quote. This is from pastor and author Tim Keller. This is what idolatry is. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. <laughs> so the secret to change is always to identify the idols of the heart. The Bible does not consider idolatry to be one sin among many. Rather, it is the only alternative to true, full faith in the living God. All our failures to trust God wholly or to live rightly are due at root to idolatry. Something we make more important than God. There is always a reason for a sin. Under our sins are idolatrous desires. Now, if you've been with us for a while, we, we talk about this, this kind of prism to think about how to repent and believe well, thinking through, like, how do we identify the idols in our lives? But it's, it's good for us tonight to return to this because if Keller's right, and I think that he is, repenting of our idolatry is what brings change in our lives. Repenting of our idolatry and believing anew, placing our faith anew in Jesus is what brings change. Now, there are two kinds of idols in our lives. The first idol that we need to understand is something called surface idols. 
These are the sins that sit on top of our hearts. So what are those? Well, these are things that we believe give our lives real meaning. Like if I were to ask you, what gives your life meaning? You would say this. Or you would say, this is what gives my life importance. This is what makes me feel significant. These are the things that we believe gives our lives real worth. And I think we begin this process of applying the gospel to our lives by identifying our source idols. And the way that we can do that is by honestly saying out loud with all humility what's really going on on the surface of our hearts. So let me just give you some categories. These, some of these may be true for you, some of these may not. But if they, they hit, uh, it's the spirit kind of pricking your, your, your spirit, pray that, that you'll do business with him on this. All right, so here's the first one, image idolatry. This is what, if you struggle with this, this is what you would say. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image. A helping idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. A dependence idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. And then the inverse of that, independence idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of anyone. This one might hurt a little bit. Work or achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am highly productive and getting a lot done and if I am excelling in my career. Materialism idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth or financial freedom or nice possessions. Maybe it's a, a religion idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and activities. Again, maybe it's the inverse of that. Irreligion idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I feel I am totally independent of organized religion. An individual person idolatry. This is interesting. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if this one person in my life is happy with me. Hmm. Racial or cultural idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my race and culture is recognized as superior. Inner ring idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. Family idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my spouse, my children, and or my parents are happy with me. Parenting idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my parenting is really more about how I am perceived by others because of what I'm providing for my children rather than them. Relationship idolatry, life only has meaning. I only have worth if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Two more. Suffering idolatry, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am hurting, if I'm in a problem. Only then do I feel noble or worthy of love or am able to deal with guilt. And lastly, ideology idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth 
if my political or social cause or party is making progress and ascending in influence and power. I tried to do a long list so I could step on everybody's toes tonight. That's a painful list, right? Well, to do the heart level work of exchanging our idols for what can only truly be found in Jesus, this is one of the most helpful places to start. Now, if you think about it, many times our prayers are repenting of surface idols. It's interesting, Trey told this in his time at the top of our service in in the liturgy about coming back from the conference, which we were at as well this week, and coming back and realizing, man, I'm a sinner. And did you hear what the example he gave, like how I relate to my children? I find myself a lot praying for, for forgiveness from God for the same stuff, for the, like the exact same thing, like anger towards my children. And that's a good prayer to pray. Like it's good for me to pray, Lord, please forgive me for that. Like it's not okay. But here's the thing, I could pray that prayer for a lifetime, yet never address the deeper heart issues behind that. If you noticed, we call this category surface idols. That's because there actually is something underneath that surface sin that is driving it. What is that called? It's called a root idol. It's the second category we have to think about. Some call it source idols. For example, if, if you struggle with, with work achievement idolatry, part of the hard work that you have to do isn't just to repent of your busyness, but it's to repent of what is underneath that. And for the sake of time tonight, we're, we're going to look at four core root idols that sit underneath all of our surface idols. There are probably more, but... Here are the four that typically sit underneath all of our idolatry, surface idolatry. Control, power, approval, and comfort. So how can you identify your source idols that sit underneath your surface idols? Like, how, how can you repent of the sin beneath the sin? Because to, to me, in my opinion, that is where real heart change begins to happen. And you can think of it this way. What is the greatest nightmare in your life? Like if you were to lose it, you would say all hope is gone. Or what is the price that you're willing to pay to get what you want? Maybe this is, this is a tough one. How do people around you experience you or feel around you when you're pursuing this? Or lastly, what is your problem emotion? So let, let, let's, let's take those four categories and press them through this this grid of core idols. If you seek power, or maybe you would call it success or winning at all costs or even influence, your greatest nightmare is to be humiliated. And the price that you're willing to pay in that is to be burdened, to feel a sense of responsibility. But the people around you often feel used. And your problem emotion is anger. Now, if you seek approval, affirmation, love, your greatest nightmare is to be rejected, right? The price that you're willing to pay is less independence, right? 
And people around you often feel smothered. And your problem emotion is cowardice. If you seek comfort, privacy, lack of stress, freedom, your greatest nightmare is stress and demands, right? And the price that you're willing to pay in order to fight against that is reduced productivity. The people around you often feel neglected and your problem emotion is boredom. Now, if you seek control, which is to be self-disciplined, to have certainty, to have standards, your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. The price that you're willing to pay is to be lonely, to not, be spontane- to not have spontaneity. People around you often feel condemned. And your problem emotion is worry. So we just said, what, what do you do if you have a work achievement idolatry? Just as an example, what's underneath that? Well, it could be any one of those four, but typically what I have found in my own life and in the lives of those that I have the privilege to walk with here is approval. You might think, man, I thought it would be like control or power. No, many times it's approval. What do we say about approval? Your greatest nightmare is to be rejected, right? So you are working so hard so that the people around you will accept you and approve of you. You're working so hard, and the price that you're willing to pay is to actually be less independent. You're working really, really hard trying to achieve, but the people around you often feel smothered. And, and maybe that this comes out because your emotional life is, 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 is not courageous, it's not brave, it's actually cowardly. So how do we repent of that? Like if we're supposed to repent of our source idols, our heart idols, what is is that that we're repenting of? We're saying, Jesus, you've never rejected me. You've accepted me. I want to depend on you. I, I, I don't want people around me to feel smothered because I know that if I find my approval from you, I can actually live freely. Not, not, I don't have to suffer like at the mercy of other people's opinions. I can live joyfully. And Lord, help me with my cowardice. Give me courage. Give me bravery. That's how we begin to repent of our heart idols. So if that is one of the most helpful grids for us to apply the gospel in our lives, to repent of surface or root idols, believe Believing that Jesus is enough, then how do we like pursue this in a way that plays itself out here in this church? It's, it's one thing to think about all of what we just talked about under the category of me. That is for sure where it starts. But this work is meant to be primarily done in a certain context. God's context for change is in community. So when we think about gospel application, we have to remember the we category. Ephesians 4.15 says it this way, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the we and the body language there. 
In Colossians 1, the way that Paul described the gospel, he calls it the word of truth. And here Paul says in Ephesians that, that you and I are to continually be speaking or, or proclaiming to one another something in love. What? The truth. The truth of the gospel. So here's what I think this means in this worship gathering, in our gospel communities, in our D groups, in our equip groups, in our men's and women's ministries contexts, all the places that, that you're invited in here at Mercy View, we are to be about the business of proclaiming the gospel to one another. And most of the time, I believe this looks like loving encouragement. It looks like Romans 12.10, outdoing one another and showing honor. It's me putting my arm around you so you are doing such a great job. Let me encourage you in the Lord in this way. Now, sometimes it looks like a loving challenge. Actually, I think that's what Ephesians 4 is talking about, speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we need to say something to someone that is truthful, but coming from a heart of love because we love them and we want to see their hearts awakened to the gospel. Now, sometimes, and this is rare, it, it looks like loving confrontation. Galatians 6.1 says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, many times it's going to happen one-on-one or in a, a smaller setting, but all of those things is meant to have an eye and an ear towards one another in order to speak the gospel to one another to help each of us be equipped so that this local church is working properly. But let me shoot straight. You have to want this. And maybe more pointedly, you have to put yourself in the way of this. Some of you are doing an amazing job of this. Like you are highly connected here at Mercy View. You're putting yourself in the way of other people who can speak the gospel to you. And in the context that you're connected in, you are not playing church. You are genuinely studying the Bible. You're confessing and repenting of your sin. You're praying for one another. You're praying for the lost. I'm so proud of you. We're going to talk about many of the ways that God calls us to go deeper with him in this series. But tonight I want to focus in on just one context where this needs to play itself out. And it's what we're doing right now. It's this worship gathering. Some of you that are here this evening, and I may be preaching the choir because you're here tonight, need to reprioritize meeting together with God's people. I know 5 p.m. is tough. But some of you need to be here more regularly so that all that happens in this time together, which is, by the way, intended to help you apply the gospel to your lives, you need to be here so that that can happen. That is one of the ways that you can get in the way of the gospel. Some of you need to redefine what regular attendance means at, at church. One thing that I, I want to encourage you to consider is, is getting here a little early to meet new people that come. When visitors come to Mercy View, they come before 5 o'clock. We'd love for you to meet them, to get to enjoy hearing their stories. Friends, I love you enough to speak the truth 
to you in, in love. And, and I, I'm curious, even with just the, a little bit of challenge right there, like how do you feel? Like, do you feel convicted? Or do you feel offended? I think Christians should be the least offended people on the planet. Because we know where we stand with Jesus. Because here's what gets pricked whenever I'm confronted by a brother or sister in Christ by something. My approval idol. And here's what I mean. If I don't believe that the person whose opinion matters most is settled, I get offended. What's happening there? That person's word is more important than God's. Friends, the cross is how Jesus sees you. And here's why that matters. When someone preaches the gospel to you through encouragement, through challenge, through confrontation, your reaction to that will show where your heart is with God. So how can you re-engage? How can we help you re-engage? Let's talk together. Reach out to myself. Reach out to John or Trey. We would love to talk with you about what it looks like to, to re-engage in a deeper way in coming around the gospel, particularly in this setting. Again, many of you have. I'm so proud of you, thankful for you. But, but, but some of us here tonight need to ask the Lord to help us see what getting in the way of the gospel looks like in our lives. I'm convinced that we cannot survive without this spiritual community here particularly again at this crossroads we find ourselves in as a church and the larger sea church, honestly. We have to be around one another so that we can proclaim the gospel to one another. I think the local church is that place. Will you commit or recommit to put yourself in the way of the gospel here at Mercy View? I'm convinced as we do that, the Lord is going to meet us there and we will experience a sense of joy and freedom maybe we've not experienced before as a church. Will you join me?